0: I'm looking forward to sharing this text with you with a little bit of trepidation. Um, I am going to speak fairly boldly, so if I um, over-speak or if I say something for which you find um, you are in disagreement, I would encourage you to talk to me afterward. Um, It's very likely that in the course of the sermon I'll say something that I don't exactly clarify well or perhaps um, leaves you questioning, maybe readjusting some of your thinking And so I encourage you to talk to me because I'm going to deal with an issue that I think in general, the church is really getting wrong. And I would assume within our church, there's a lot of us that are getting this wrong. So let me just frame out kind of a generic concern that I have, because I think it's broad, and then the particular in the text, I think we'll we'll, we'll show you where it's a, a deeper concern for Crossway maybe, and even our church culture in general in Bakersfield, Okay, so one of the things that Satan is doing is, as an, as an evil and, and dark being, he disguises himself as an angel of light. And, and the apostle says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 11, uh, so no wonder that his servants do that too. So one of my concerns as a pastor is that what, what is happening culturally, and therefore is a huge danger in, in the church, is that we take sin and we redefine it as not-so-sinful. But so this is happening in probably the clearest way we can see it in culture, and I think because of our conservative culture in Bakersfield and within our church, we can feel the wrongness of it rather than even having to biblically see the wrongness of it, which is really clear biblically, is sexual sins, right? So, so like uh, lust is normalized, pornography is normalized, even um, you know, premarital uh, sexuality is so normalized that it would be nothing for a respectable businessman to encourage a young man working for him to live with his girlfriend to see if if marriage is a good proposition for these two. And he's encouraging her towards sexual, or excuse me, this young man, towards sexual sin and and unblushingly thinking it's good advice. Like, this is wisdom. And and the church can begin to start to soften its views on sexual sin. Right, so just last week I heard about It had been a faithful church, and the person was trying to tell me it's not a faithful church. They now have a ministry um, within the church and a pastor for the LGBTQ people within the church. That's troubling on, on multiple levels. I mean, I appreciate the desire to reach all types of people, but if you have people within your church for which you are pastoring and they're living in the LGBTQ lifestyle, That church is normalizing and redefining the lines of sin in such a way that now sin is no longer sinful. so, So I just want to take a second and say, okay, we can see it in others. So what might we be doing that same type of redefinition with? And I'm going to take you to Philippians 4 here. I'm only going to read a few words at first. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. In case you didn't hear that, do not be anxious about anything. One of the pastoral concerns that I would have then, if I'm I'm connecting that to the introduction so far, is that we have taken anxiety and a general sense of worry and fear about life And we are so normalizing it that when we meet people who are filled with worry and anxiety, rather than calling them to change, calling them to stop that behavior. And in fact, I would say on this text and others, we would generally warn them away from that behavior as as a sinful response to life and calling them to confession and restoration to Christ in a state of non-worry that often we're encouraging them to go to secular counselors or doctors and get medicated. Now, this is troubling because it's hard to repent of a sickness. I think if we were going to use another analogy, alcoholism is one we often see this in. You have a person in your church who's a drunk. He's constantly going back to alcohol and he's getting drunk again and again and again. And our culture says it's alcoholism. I, I don't really care what name you call it, but alcoholism sounds like a disease you get treated from, not a, a behavior that needs to be repented from. So, so my concern is that we go, come to a text like this, and we begin to immediately apologize for the text. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety is antithetical to the general Christian lifestyle. That is, generally speaking, anxiety is not an acceptable thing for you to have in your Christian pocket. Get rid of it and repent of it. Don't walk around with it. Deal with it. But boy, that feels harsh. I, I, I know that we have many people who struggle under a constant pressure of anxiety within our church. And yet I come to a text like this, and my fear is that there is a large percentage of people that will hear the do not be anxious for anything, and they're like, yeah, that's really good. I hope people hear this. But, but that's not how we're supposed to handle Scripture. We look into the mirror of Scripture not to see others. It's not a lens. It's not, it's not a microscope to put others under. It's a mirror to see yourself in. And so the question I want you to ask this morning is, do you respond to, to anxiety biblically? Do you respond righteously to anxiety? So how do I respond to anxiety? This feels a little bit like a Bob Newhart sketch. Stop it. All right? Do not be anxious. About what? Anything. So, so let me, let me I'm, I'm still building the runway right here. This thing's not even taken off yet. So it's still introduction. I want you to go to Matthew 7 with me very quickly. I'm sorry, I said Matthew 7. I wanted to go Matthew 6. And I'm basically arguing here for verse 6 being a call to a strong, strong conviction that anxiety needs to be eradicated. Okay, so I'm going to go on the medication front and say, while, while in any individual circumstance, perhaps we would, we would suggest that There is this narrow, narrow, narrow window in which medication might be an acceptable response to acute or severe anxiety that the general response of the church should not be to medicate any more than if you had severe, massive pain in your leg and you think the right solution is just to numb it. Or maybe walk, it down, walk around with a, an epidural in all the time just so you don't feel the pain. The real solution to that type of leg issue is to figure out what's causing the pain and to deal with the cause because that pain is not supposed to be naturally just resting on your body. You are to deal with it. And I think with anxiety, what's happened within our culture is it's such an ever-present worry that, that rather than rooting it out, seeing it for the cancer it is seeing it for the 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 spy the the traitor that lies within our minds and attacking it we just turn the volume down on that traitor and it's causing issues so i am not I am not trying to say more than the scripture, but I realize in, in some of that I'm probably hitting you or a loved one between the eyes. So I want to take you to Matthew 6 and, and at least do some strengthening of that call to stop the anxiety, stop permitting anxiety, stop tolerating anxiety, stop silencing it, rather deal with it, okay? So we come to Matthew 6. I want to start with verse 24 and just bounce through this text in a couple different places. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with anxiety? But Jesus clearly sees a connection, because the very first word in the next verse in the ESV is, therefore, I would suggest to you that he's 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 sensing within the culture he's preaching to a tendency to say, the way I solve my problems is by money. That is, I don't have clothes, so I just need more money, then I'll get clothes. I'm not sure where I'm going to get food for tomorrow, so you know what would be really helpful right now is if I had some more money, because then I can just get food. So these are really natural concerns he begins to deal with as as he pulls apart the issue of anxiety. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. There are about 20 uses of this Greek term in the Bible. All but one of them are negative. Almost every time you see the word anxiety in Greek, it's negative. I just say that because it's not always translated anxiety. Okay, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? So as, as you look at this concern he has for the people he's preaching to, it's that worry and anxiety actually leads them to trust in something besides God. Right? Like the traitor within their minds is saying, you should be worried And the solution for that worry is help that's not from heaven, right? right? Your life is more than just food and clothes, and yet worry almost always is reduced to things that are not eternal and not from heaven. Where's your body going to be in 150 years? Where are your clothes going to be in 150 years? Where are you going to be in 150 years? I hope your answer is heaven. But the things that consume us are grades on a math test, a paycheck next week because rent's due this week, health because we got a bump on our shoulder and we think it might be cancer. Listen, the bump and your shoulder are dust in 150 years. That math test won't matter in 150 years. But the way in which you approach them does matter. Right? That will matter in 150 years. So, so we, live, we live with pressure, and the fleshly response is worry. It's anxiety. So when we look at this text, he's saying, there's a solution here, And as he continues down the text, he says multiple times, don't be anxious, verse 27. Which one of you by anxiety can add a single hour to his life? So why are you anxious about clothes? Continue on, look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious by saying these things. This is verse 32 then, the Gentiles seek after these things. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious about the things in the future. So so he is going hard at anxiety. Uh, just Just for the concerns of the room, here's how anxiety is defined. This is the, I think it's the Oxford English Dictionary I have here. It's a feeling of worry or nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent or future event, something with an uncertain outcome. And Jesus very clearly says, do not be worried about future things. Do not be worried about the things of tomorrow. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, so be careless, don't save money, don't worry about the types of food you eat, and just hork down bacon all day, and don't worry about tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. He's suggesting to us that the way our heart works a problem, the way our mind works, it's like an airport where the runways are shut down and our thoughts just are circling that airport again and again and again, is not only profitless, it's actually spiritually dangerous because it will lead us to love something besides God, trust in something besides God. And that's why he starts with a warning, you cannot serve God and money. I think the American system, we got a lot more going on. You cannot serve God in money, God in health. Maybe you could say God in medicine, right? God in strategic planning. So we have have investments and retirement funds. We have financial planners that will help us so that the future is no concern. We have doctors who tell us again and again, exercise and eat right. We're worried because we're still not doing that but we trust them that they'll fix it even if we don't do that. And so we have all of these things just resting on our shoulders, pressing us to worry, and the outlet is sin of not only anxiety, but false trust. It's interesting when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, when he says the concerns of this world choke out the gospel, that's the anxieties. Of this world anxiety will kill gospel hope I am suggesting to you all that we as we as a Christian culture have bought into a therapeutical medicated worldview of anxiety we need to go after it and I'm not saying we need to go after it in others I'm saying you need to look in the mirror Because probably the most self-confident people in this room still struggle with sinful anxieties. But particularly in a culture that tells us that anxiety is something that we can deal with with a couple pills, we are tolerating something. We are muting that pressure within that is actually being used by God for a different reason. Okay, so go back to Philippians. The cure to anxiety, the solution, the response to anxiety, however you want to phrase it. We have this command. It's a negative command. Don't be anxious. There's a response, though. Instead of being anxious, what are we supposed to be? Are you all with me in, in Philippians? It doesn't say praising or rejoicing. It says praying. Look at the text again. Philippians 4. We're in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But do what? Okay, It's actually, if you're looking at the two commands of this verse, get rid of anxiety, let the Lord know. right? Make it known. It's interesting, it's a parallel command. When you go back a little bit earlier, he says, let your gentleness or your reasonableness be known to men. Now we're to let our requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I would suggest to you that that initial pressure you feel that often leads you to worry is a pressure that should lead you to the throne of grace. So so as a parent, I see a young little toddler waddling around by our pool. I immediately have a spike of concern. If I was a bad parent, I might worry. And do nothing. Watch the child topple the pool. Yeah, yeah man, that worry is right. They're going to fall in. What should I probably do if I see a child waddling around by the pool? Right, like, do something. Worry is a natural response, maybe a little bit like pain, to some of the concerns in life that God has put in our world. And there are righteous responses to it. And it's not just thinking about it in a way that builds up tension and doesn't actually produce any righteous outcome. So, rather than worrying in my mind, I'm instead supposed to be praying, right? Let this be made known to God. Well, what's known to God? And how do I do this? It says, in in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So, there are three phrases he uses for prayer, right? Prayer, petitions. And requests. I don't think the point is that we dissect those all and make huge big wedges between them. They're all part of that, that body of prayer of how I speak to God. Prayer is the most generic way in which we approach God. Supplication is often appealing and petitioning for others. So it's coming to God on the on the on the basis of someone else's need. So this is, this is the one time you see anxiety used, or that phrase in the Greek, that same word in the Greek, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, where, where Epaphroditus is anxious about their welfare. It's the only time I can find in the New Testament that it's not used negatively. That is, he is concerned about their welfare. And that's how the ESV translates it, just so we recognize it's used positively rather than using that word anxiety. What did Epaphroditus do about it, though? He encouraged them. He went and sought the apostles' help. He apparently communicates to him in some form where the apostle writes back to the Philippians. He didn't just sit down and worry on the issue. He went and worked for the good of the church and served them. Okay, so we're supposed to let God know, so we petition for others, we pray to God, and then it says, let your request be made known to God. Again, I, I don't know that the word request has massive significance, but it'd be something along the lines of asking and just Appealing to God to act? Fairly simple. And yet, I think it's one of those disciplines in the middle of worry we don't do. In the middle of anxiety, we are sketching out how bad it could go. We're catastrophizing. Well, if I do this, they could respond by that. Multiple times this week, I have counseled people to do things. Almost always, the response back is, Yeah, but filled by speculation about how it could go wrong. It's amazing to me how many times wisdom or simple obedience is qualified by if I do that, then this will happen. So apparently, our view of the future has gotten very, very clear at times. Do right. And here's what right is: in the middle of things that are causing you to worry, that anxiety sprouts up in your heart. It's like it's like a red flag shooting up. What should you be doing? oh, I see a red flag of worry, I should be praying. You don't just ignore the red flag. You don't just like by grit and determination say, I will not worry, put that flag down. Now, if God has caused you to be concerned about something, do not let it metastasize into anxiety. Rather, pray. Speak to God. It's interesting the preposition here actually says toward God It seems as though he's telling us that prayer is walking to God spiritually. It is entering into communion with him. Hebrews uses that example. I think it's actually why he does what he does here with this bridge phrase where he says that the Lord is near. You come to Hebrews and he says, those that want to draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's using near as a a metaphor for prayer and fellowship with God through prayer in Hebrews. So here we have this idea that I am coming to God and I'm bringing to him requests. I am pleading to him in prayer. I am petitioning for the good of others. I am communing with God when my heart is tempted to be anxious. So rather than being anxious, I pray. And then he says, with thanksgiving. The antithesis of worry It is really hard to be pouring out praise and and adoring God for who he is, for praising him for his majestic works, and simultaneously be worried. It is when Peter takes his eyes off Christ and puts him on the waves and the wind that he begins to be afraid Thanksgiving is deliberately putting your attention on Christ and not merely just considering him, but considering him with a heartfelt gratitude and praise for who he is. Now, I think I've heard before people suggest something like this, that we give Thanksgiving because we pray as those who are so confident of the answer that we pray before we even get the answer. That is not at all, I don't think, what this text is telling us to do. Rather, I think you'd see Romans as a clear parallel of this. Look with me in Romans 1. I am convinced that prayerlessness is just the practical outcome of a heart that in moments is more atheistic than Christian. Look with me in verse 21. For although they knew God, Okay so in case in case you missed that he's about to launch in his condemnation of mankind in general and he says for although they knew God they did not honor him as God so the issue is not genuine atheism what's the issue So although they knew God they did not honor him as God It's a rejection It's an intellectual awareness of God, but a failure to practically live as though he is God. By honoring him, and do you notice that next line? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This litany of condemnation that's about to come out of the pen of Paul through the Holy Spirit just drills all of our human nature as reprehensible, and in the middle, it just feels like gratitude is just like, really? Like, well, you don't say thank you to their server? Like, like, ingratitude is this horrible thing, but it's not ingratitude to people. It's ingratitude to God. It's a byproduct of rejection or rebellion. And it leads to absolute spiritual defection and rebellion. When he says that we are to, to make our requests made known to God with thanksgiving, he is suggesting that the entire foundation of prayer is gratitude. We don't come to God and say, God, I thank you beforehand for answering the request to save my son. That's not what he's asking us to do. What he's asking us to do is come with hearts full of gratitude that are expressing that gratitude for all sorts of graces and mercies God has given us, that the whole approach of the believer into the throne of grace is one of undeservedness and therefore gratitude for our acceptance. You've been adopted. You don't belong there. It's not your house by right. That adoption cost God the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. He has brought you in by the architecture of his grace, a plan before the foundation of the world to bring you into his mercy. How could you not be grateful? He loves you so much, he numbers your hair. When you love yourself enough to go in the mirror and start counting your hairs, we know you have an issue. God keeps an active tally of your hair. He knows you. He cares deeply for you. I think we've missed very very clearly the statement at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, and how compelling that phrase is to Jesus Christ. He's saying this is how you pray, our Father who is in heaven. Do you come to God with a heart filled with gratitude or filled with the life's needs you see coming down in the future? If you just read the Psalms, you'd recognize that David has both lots of needs but a very clear awareness of God's grace and mercy in his life. Gratitude fills the Psalms. I mean, how many times do you say things like, bless the Lord? Praise the Lord. Again and again, the Psalms are filled with a call to join the writer in worshiping and praising the God of all grace. And yet, at times, David laments of the sorrows he's facing, the enemies surrounding him, the troubles upon him, and even thoughts like, why is my soul downcast? It's not that he didn't struggle with the things that fill us with anxiety. It's that his response was to pour out his needs and requests to God with a spirit of thanksgiving. That would be one of the anthems of the entire book of Psalms. So, my response to the concerns of life that normally in a fleshy response fill me with anxiety is to turn from anxiety and be filled with, with thanksgiving and prayer. I'm separating those two even though I, I, I think even as we come to God and ask for more, there's this spirit of satisfaction and joy and gratitude as we come. And then we come down to verse 7. I think verse 7 strikes a a challenging hope for all of us. Right, so, so we let our requests be made known to God. It's a way in which we come to God, we join Him as we ask for these needs in an attitude of thanksgiving, and then we get this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That verse alone probably should be a standalone sermon because I find it so compelling and so hope giving. Are you filled with anxiety? Have I clobbered you? I hope I haven't too much. Some of you might need a little clobbing, but hopefully you don't feel too beat down. So here's the hope the hope is not that you stop having things that cause anxiety. The hope is that a righteous response of prayer and thanksgiving will lead you to a place of gratitude and rest as God guards your heart and minds. Look again in verse 7. This is not just therapeutic wisdom. We need divine rescue. And this is one of the reasons I think we, we do ourselves a disservice If we call anxiety and worry merely some psychological phenomenon, if we we reduce it to some biochemical response, there's no need for spiritual rescue, there's no need for the grace and the peace of God, merely we just need to get more rest or get better medicine. But in fact, if this is a spiritual battle, then we have a spiritual answer. So we come to verse 7, and we have a spiritual answer that God gives us, and the peace of God. Now, this means God's peace, the peace that would typify God himself. Can we just meditate on that for a moment? God is not worried, right? Like, we are called to be Christ-like. We're called to be like God. That's what godly means. God is not worrying ever. So if we're going to be like God and putting on his character, I think we can simply argue that if God doesn't worry, neither should we. God is not in heaven going, oh, I hope my plan works. (laughs) Like, roll the dice, hope it comes out. Like, that is not our God at all. We know from Scripture that he works all things out according to the purpose of his will. All things are working out. Does that include hard things and suffering and sin? Absolutely. Did Jesus Christ experience trials and suffering? Absolutely. If any man would have been filled with anxieties, it's a man who knows from the time he begins to understand his messianic call that he is going to be executed for the sins of mankind. Can you imagine having that in your future? Like to know for years ahead of time you're dying. And here's how, and perhaps even a sense of when. It'd be really hard to joke six months out with your your buddies Peter and John, knowing the shadow of the cross is even there, darkening your days. And yet, I don't think we get the picture of Jesus being this glum, lemon-sucking man, right? Like, do you get the idea that when he's with his disciples, like he he's filled with the concerns of the cross, he's aware of it. He's clearly aware of it. God has no anxiety or worry. And that might be where you say, yeah, but he's God. And we might respond back, yeah, and you're his child. He could not love you more. He could not pay greater attention to you. He could not listen to you with a better ear. He could, not more, he could not be more closely involved in your life. He could not secure you with stronger arms. There are none. He could not give you clearer promises. He has written them clearer, clearly. All right, so, so then you might say, well, but what if? So let's ask the what if. Is there anything out of God's control? Nothing. That's why you're anxious for nothing. Is there, is there anything about your life that he has not planned? Nothing. So be anxious for nothing. Has he promised to be with you? Then why are you worried? Because he is not. This is the peace of God. This is why it passes understanding. It's a, it's a, it's a peace that is unavailable to those who are unaware of Scripture, not walking in Scripture, or who are unbelievers because they don't trust the Scripture. It's incomprehensible that Jesus Christ could enter into, without anxiety, the moments of the cross. It didn't mean he doesn't have pressure. It doesn't mean he doesn't feel the intense concern that he's going to die. But I think it does mean he's not worried the way we would talk about anxiety. Okay, so this is God's peace. Notice what it does then it's this, it's this peace that's beyond human comprehension. And it guards us. So here's the solution then for my anxiety. It's not avoiding things that are concerns. It's not medication. It's not more rest. These things might be helpful in some points. But the real solution to anxiety is the grace of God. God guards us. God guards us. He will guard our hearts and minds, it says. So the word for guard is the same type of word that Pilate would use for his soldiers guarding him. They stand sentinel to protect. So here's God guarding our hearts and minds. So the heart would be that whole inner person, the thoughts, the feelings, even the volition, the, the way we choose to do. God is guarding these things, and then he says, and your thoughts, And that's exactly where we go astray, isn't it? So maybe some of our prayers should be something like this. Please, dear God, guard my heart and my thoughts because they stray into the world of anxieties. And my flesh tells me to worry when your scripture tells me to trust. Guard me. Stand watch over me so I dare not trespass into anxiety and excuse it. I need God's grace to guard me from worry. We don't necessarily have a passage that speaks to the careless man, but if you have no worries, wake up. Dads, you should be paying attention to your kids. You should be concerned about the godliness of your wife. You should be working hard, and you should be diligent. You have a lot of burdens that God has placed on you. So carelessness, thoughtlessness, recklessness are stupid Right, isn't that what Proverbs would say? Folly, foolishness, and in good translations, stupidity. Right, this is like, that's, that's not the Christian heart to, to be reckless, nor to be like, fearless in some kind of anesthetized, nothing bothers me type of sense. Rather, it's to be truly godly. God is deeply concerned about the salvation of people, God is deeply concerned about the godliness of your spouse. God is deeply concerned about these things, so he's moving with grace and mercy, and he's put you there as his agent, so you should be concerned about these things. But to worry them, to just sit and fret, to be filled with soul-wrenching fear about what is coming down the road is simply to be choosing to be sinful. That is not the call of the Christian. I think one of the challenges we have, and, and if, I, if I use the phrase distorted thinking, where, where we imagine the outcomes being really tragic. So most people are really afraid of public speaking. Right? They, they, they have a fear of it. I mean, on the scales, people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. They really are, which is bizarre to me. I mean, I, I'm kind of numb. I mean, I do it a lot, so I'm kind of used to looking dumb in public, so it doesn't really have tons of fear on me. But when you, when you look at that, like, there's this, there's this fear that grips people. So, so I want you to imagine this young man. It's called, let's, let's say he's going to talk to his high school football team about Jesus Christ because he's, he's got a Bible study and a whole bunch of people are coming from his football team and they don't know Jesus. And so he's filled with anxieties, right? What's he worried about? Good things and bad things, right? He's worried that the gospel's clear. He's worried that they understand the truth. He's also very afraid that, like, when he's walking up there, he's going to trip and fall on his face in front of the whole football team and look like an idiot. He's worried that he's going to fumble his words, right? He's, he's worried that he's going to mess up. He's worried that he's going to look dumb. He's worried that he'll be labeled, and then forever afterwards, he'll be the goody-two-shoes on the team that everyone makes fun of, and when they cuss, they look at him like, oh, I'm sorry, is that okay with you? Like, he's worried about all these things. They fill his head. Right, like you could put yourself in his shoes. What should he do? What should he do? Well, he should praise God, gratitude. He's got an opportunity to to speak about the only name that's worth speaking about forever. He gets to declare the praises of Jesus Christ. He should thank God for that opportunity. He should thank God that he's got a bunch of unbelieving teammates that who care enough about him to hear him speak. He should thank God that he knows the scripture enough to declare the gospel of God's grace. But what's going to consume a person that, that's filled with anxiety is probably more about looking dumb. Right? Like that, that's what owns us. So he should prepare well. He should pray. And perhaps he should even repent of being more concerned about his glory than Christ's. He should evaluate some of his fears. Is it realistic to be afraid of looking dumb? I mean, how, I suppose he could be, it's realistic that you would look dumb. But does it really matter? Is it eternal? Is it heavenly? Okay, so when we're working through anxiety, if anxiety is that kind of initial unease, that causes us to worry a problem and and be anxious about it. The Bible says don't do that, so I need to repent of it. I need to ask God to forgive me for doing it. Then I need to turn to the Lord in prayer. The foundation of prayer being thanksgiving. And as I do that, God's promise is to give me protection. Right? The peace guards me. So how does he protect me? By giving me Peace. The Old Testament would use that word shalom. It, 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 it's this, I mean, think about how common that, that was a greeting is peace. Anxieties are so normal. So I, I would offer this little bit of hope. I, most men in our church have constant struggles with keeping their minds and hearts clean. Most people in our church have constant struggles with complaining and anger. They're normal. Most people in our church have regular problems that just own them. And I don't mean own them in the sense of, like, they have control over them, but they're just going to be ever-present, right? They're like cell phones. They just stay with people. There's all, if you don't have your cell phone, tell me. You're not going and looking for it and getting it, right? Like, they're always with you. There's, there's temptations like that. Some of us have different ones. They're unique, but I think anxiety is a common struggle. So the fact that you have a constant temptation, like this ongoing weakness where if pressure comes, if, if the future looms, you immediately are tempted to respond with anxiety is not something to be ashamed of. That's fairly normal. But let's not normalize the failure. Do you understand the gap between those two? Right. Like, I'm going to use the example that, that if I have a recognition that most men have to guard their hearts and eyes and that is an ongoing pressure on them so that they can never be thoughtless about how they're interacting with women. They need to be careful. They need to be guarded because it's an ongoing temptation for most men. Then for me to say that a lot of us also have that ongoing weakness towards anxiety should not lead us then to normalize the failure in it. And I think that's where we've been a little bit confused. So if a young man comes to my office like, Pastor, for the last decade, I've really struggled with sexual temptation. I don't go like, what? Are you serious, temptation? You should repent. What I say is that temptation is serious. Let's battle this biblically. Let's not be okay with giving in. Have you been giving in? What is the nature of giving in? Let's repent of the sin of giving in to temptation. But that press to give in to temptation is probably gonna walk with you till your heart stops beating. The solution is also not to like be chemically losing that pressure and become a eunuch. Right? Like, who gives that solution to that young man? Well, you know what? There's medical surgery, we'll deal with this. You will not be tempted again. The world's gonna die. Right? Like, like this is an ongoing weakness of almost every man in our church, and we all know it. The world knows it too. This is why, on a fantastic movie that has nothing to do with guys and girls, they'll splash trash on the screen because it'll get guys to watch the movie like crazy. Everyone knows it's a constant problem, so we're clear thinking about it. Right? Like, this pressure to give in to this temptation. It needs to be battled like your life depends on it, your eternal life, because it does. You cannot just dwell in sin and, and, and indulge in it, John, right? I cannot be living in sin, celebrating and enjoying it, and truly be redeemed from it. So we're, we're, we're clear on this one. That's why I use it as an illustration, as maybe challenging as it is. So we come over to anxiety, and we confuse that, that temptation to worry with the actual worry. And I think we need to be cautious that our response to temptation isn't to say, let's get rid of temptation by getting rid of anything to worry about. Right? Like Throughout human history, this has been a pressure, especially on certain types of people. It seems like it is, generally speaking, Women seem to have more challenges this way than men, but men get hit by this pretty hard too. That tendency to give in to the sin, we don't anesthetize the person through drugs, through alcohol, or by removing the things that are valuable in life. Like, that's, that's nonsense. So we go back to that young boy who's got an opportunity to share the gospel. We don't say, hey, you know, since you're anxious, just cancel what feels like doing because it's filled with anxiety nor do we say hey listen that spiritual stuff that's really intense that's a lot of pressure in you don't talk about jesus then everything will be great then you won't be ashamed right The, the very the very thing that's causing the anxiety is in fact a great a great opportunity to glorify god so we don't remove the anxiety rather we we challenge one another to look to the lord as an example of how we deal with pressure we don't get anxious. We trust God. We live for the kingdom, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. So that's a do. Right? So, so if, if you're an anxious person, here's how you know you're sinning. You're not doing right. So if your anxiety is keeping you home all day, you're sinning. Right? So, so like there are certain things like, like PTSD or like they, this extreme depression and anxiety that can, that can just Chain a person to their home. That person, generally speaking, probably has had a series of sinful failures and needs some real strong friendships that challenge them to repent when they need to repent and to get out and do right. Because they're not doing right. Are you guys, are you guys getting the picture that, like, like we blend these two that, that temptation to feel that anxiety and respond with worry, or to feel that initial pressure is what I've been calling it, and respond to anxiety leading to sin. So how are you doing? Are you worried, people? Are you filled with anxieties? Maybe God has called you to help someone who's anxious god guards our hearts and our minds when you look at the next verse he says i almost read the wrong one finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise do what think about these things All Right. so so He's not fully in that context of anxiety anymore, but he's not far away from it, is he? It's not surprising he's saying, don't be anxious with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. God will guard your hearts and minds through his peace and think about good things because what's holding your mind captive is fears about the future you have no control of, but God does trust him. Walk with gratitude. All right, I realize some of you have ongoing battles with that, Let me encourage you to seek counsel. I don't mean by that therapy. I mean by that godly people who will walk with you because sometimes it's really hard to see yourself clearly. Sometimes you need accountability. Most men who are serious about the battle have some level of accountability in their lives. It's surprising to me how alone people with anxiety feel and how isolated they become. If you have real anxious problems, Let's battle this as a church. I, sh- I don't want to condemn anyone who's taking medicine. If for a moment you need medicine in order to get a spiritual handle on your worries and anxieties, I can understand. But let's not be a church that uses that as a crutch to numb the thing we should be fixing. Right? Just like if I have pain in my leg, I don't want to numb it. I want to fix the problem causing the pain. Let's ask ourselves what's causing anxiety. Let's battle it spiritually together, be super gracious with one another. But I do not think God is glorified by a church that has found a solution to anxiety that stops the feeling of anxiety that has never been available in all of human history and somehow think that we actually believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Does that make sense? Because Scripture is sufficient for me to deal with anxiety all up until about, like, what, 1950. And all of a sudden, pharmacies are necessary for holiness. We should be asking ourselves if God's word's sufficient. Because if it was sufficient for 1,950 years, medicine is not actually the answer. Okay, but I, I do think medicine is a common grace. And sometimes we, I mean, pain, I love painkillers if I have surgery. I really don't want to go through that just like by biting a leather strap and letting them cut on me without any anesthesia. You know, so like I, medicine can be really helpful, but but... I'm I'm fearful that it's we are actually not addressing the root of the sin. So let's be challenging one another. Pursue grace. Trust God and do so by communing with him in prayer and he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, I trust that you will teach us to be dealing with the normal and acceptable sin of anxiety. Lord, we recognize that because it's a complex issue, that we can have a tendency to excuse things that we should not. We can also have a tendency to condemn things that we should not. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to submit to your word to be people who are battling against sin with rigor. Lord, I pray that we would not tolerate sinful anxiety ever. So I pray that the spirit would convict us of the types of worries, the types of concerns, the type of introspection that you call us away from. That it's fruit of trusting in stuff like money and medicine and exercise as the means by which we are safe would be something we repent from father instead i ask that you give this church a disposition of profound gratitude and trust in the lord jesus christ that the recognition of your absolute perfect management of this universe the flawless wisdom by which you direct our lives The absolute pure and fathomless love of Christ would secure our hearts. Lord, help us to see anxiety as a temptation to distrust you. Stir our hearts to instead trust supremely our great Savior. Lord, help our eyes and our hearts to be steadfastly fixed to Christ. He is worth trusting. He has never failed us. He is present always. He is near. We need not be afraid. We cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Guard us from the cares of this world. Keep our hearts and minds devoted to you and free from anxiety. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.